The sermon for this morning is, the text for the sermon is taken from Ephesians 5, the first six verses. In connection with that, I thought it's appropriate that we first read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the verses 9 through 20. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In my Bible, that's page 1134. 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to start reading at verse 9, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So for the the text for this morning, or the the reading for this morning, then the text is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, the verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 1. There God's word says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience." So far the text. Then after the proclamation of God's word, we're going to sing together from hymn 31, the verses 1 and 2.
Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, in the first verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the Lord tells us that by nature we are dead in sin. And what he means with that is that he means that it is our nature to, to want sinful things and to pursue sinful things. And so if God left us on our own, then we would be no different from the people in the world around us, that our lives would center around money, around sexuality, around entertainment, around recreation, around sports, around comfort, and around pleasure. We give ourselves over to pursuing sensuality, but in the end, we would experience much of the same distress that many people in society around us experience. But you know, that's not where God left us. He made us alive in Christ. He made us into new people, and he rescued us from our sinful desires. And as an act of grace, he gave us a totally new identity. You are no longer dead in sin, but you are now alive in Christ. As an act of grace, he lives in your heart with his Holy Spirit, and you become alive to God. You have a relationship with him. And when you know God and when you have a relationship with him, then your whole orientation of your life changes. It's a really precious gift. You're no longer in darkness, but you now walk in the light. The question becomes, what does it mean in real life to be made alive in Christ? Well, here in the first verses of Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul, he continues to to develop the thought for us of what it looks like. He shows us that our identity is very different, that our priorities are quite, quite changed because of that. We'll consider what God teaches us under this theme, our Lord calls us to live out our new identity in Christ. In the first place, we're called to imitate God's love, and secondly, to flee from sin. And so our text starts off with these words. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. God says, the, the first and most important thing you do if you're made alive in Christ is that you imitate me. And then the way we do that, he spells out in the rest of the verse. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the Lord's saying here, you need to imitate me. And he says, you need to do that by walking as I do. You might compare it to, to following in his footsteps. The Lord walks along a beach and you see his footprints along the beach and you come and you walk after him. You follow his footprints. And the footprints of the Lord in this case are a life of love. Walk in love, he says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The foundational attitude that our Father has towards us is one of love. He speaks about that in verse 1 there. He addresses you as his beloved children. You are my children whom I love. You're not strangers. You're not people that he he holds back from. Sometimes you have that. You you sit on an airplane, you sit next to one, you try to engage in a conversation with the person, but you're scary. 
and they don't know you, and so they don't want to talk to you. Well, that's not the Lord's attitude to you. You are His beloved child. He says, you're, you're included with me. And you don't only come as a visitor. No, he says, you get to, to be a part of my family. You are my beloved child. I adopt you and I include you in my family. You get to live in the safety and the security of family life where you have a loving father who looks after you. And what God really wants us to imitate here is he says, he wants us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then it says there that Christ gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, these two words, this fragrant offering and the sacrifice, these are words that were often used in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system. So the, the Israelites, they, they had to make these offerings to God. And God says that Jesus Christ has done such a thing for us. He's offered himself. He's made a sacrifice himself for us. And he's given his own life for you to, to be included in the family of God. If you really stop and think about that, what an incredible gift that God gives us, brothers and sisters. You know, every once in a while, it might happen. Somebody gives their life for another person. You're in war, and something's going down. And in that moment, then you, you sacrifice your life for the sake of your friend. Or another time, it could happen that, that somebody's in an accident, and it's really precarious. And you go in, and you save the person. But let's say you get badly burned because of it, and you die yourself because of what you've done. Well, it's the ultimate sacrifice that you give for another person. It's the ultimate expression of love that you show to another. John 15, 13, our Lord Jesus tells us, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. But really what he's saying there is he's saying, I've loved you with the greatest love that you could possibly imagine. Now, the truth is, brothers and sisters, that we deserve to go to hell. We deserve judgment. We are sinners. And we owe God big time. And the only way that we can pay is with blood, with your blood. You sin, you die. That was the rule. If you give sin a place in your life, then God says, I'm going to make you pay for that. I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to make you, you endure eternal punishment because of the rebellion that you've done against me. And then Jesus Christ steps up. And he says, Father, he says, I don't want them to deal that. I don't want them to have to go through that. And so I'm willing to bear their punishment. And I'll do it for them. So I will die. And I will suffer your judgment, your eternal judgment, against every single sin that they've ever committed. Well, since God is so kind to you, brothers and sisters, since he's done it for you, now he says, I want you to imitate me. I want you to live the kind of life that I have lived for you. In real life, what does it mean? If we go back to chapter 1, it's important to notice in, in 5 verse 1, it starts off with the word therefore. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And the word therefore connects what he's saying here with what's come before. How has God shown his love for us? How does God wish us to imitate that love? 
Well, if you go back one verse to verse 32, 4 verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God shows his love for us in being kind and tender-hearted towards us, in forgiving us. And now he says, as I've been kind to you, as I have a tender heart in my dealings with you, I call you to be kind to your brothers and sisters and to be tender in your hearts towards them. Well, how much hasn't the Lord forgiven you, brothers and sisters? How often haven't you sinned against him? Isn't it true that we all have a mountain of sin? Our own characters, our besetting sins, it's the same sin that we, that we often fall into again and again. You know, it often happens in my life that when I confess my sins to God, then I have to stand there at the end of the day and I say, Lord, here I am again. And it's the same old stuff. And I'm sorry again. And I pray that you would forgive me. Well, that's what he's done. He says, I do forgive you. Again and again and again. Now, the truth is, brothers and sisters, is that we don't really understand the extent of the love that God has for us. The apostle prays for the Ephesians that they would. It was one of the great prayers he had for them. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, he prayed for them that they may understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for them, that they would live out of this love. And he says to them, he says, you have to understand that God's love is so great, he will do more for you than all that you can ask or imagine. And so he asked God, he says, make it clear to these Ephesians, help them to understand how much you love them and help them to live out of that love that you have extended to them. The Lord knows you, brothers and sisters. He knows everything about you. He knows your fears and anxieties. He knows the suffering you've endured. He knows the hardships that you're dealing with. And he cares for you very deeply. And so now, as your father, he will provide for you. He loves you. Exodus 32, there were times his people couldn't do it anymore. And he said to his people, he says, in that case, he says, I'll be your father who carries you. I'll pick you up, and I'll walk the journey, and I'll do it for you. Well, then, brothers and sisters, may you show the same love to those around you, to your husband, and to your wife, to your children, and to your parents, to your friends, to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't hold back from each other but rather open your hearts to one another and love each other and show one another the love that God has shown you. And then if you understand the love that God has for you in Christ, then our text says it's also going to come out in another way. You can show God how much you love him by fleeing from your sins. When you love God, then you don't want to offend him. It's a few verses earlier back in Ephesians 4 verse 30 that the Lord calls us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 
as those who know God, as those who understand everything that Christ has done for us, then out of love for Him, we don't want to grieve Him. We don't want to continue in our sins. And then here in, in chapter 3, or chapter 5, verse 3, the Apostle Paul lists a number of ways in which Christ renews our lives. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Must not even be named among you. Another way of translating that is, is not even a hint. Let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed. Because God says these are improper for my holy people. The word impurity here, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to, to ritual impurity, to uncleanness. But in the New Testament, it's often used in connection with sexual immorality. And the word for sexual immorality here in our text is not only referring to adultery, but it's a more general word that refers to any kind of sexual impropriety. While Paul's writing to the Ephesians here, you have to understand the historic context. You know, back then, adultery was fairly commonplace. There's lots of people in Ephesians in Roman society who practiced adultery. They also had slavery, and it was not uncommon for a man to sleep together with his slave girl. It was also fairly commonplace. The people used to, to worship their gods. And if you go to the temples of the gods, there were often temple prostitutes. And part of the worship of their gods was sleeping together with these prostitutes. And they also lived in a culture where homosexuality was a, a common thing. It was actually a celebrated form of love. And then periodically, they'd have these feasts to their gods. You might compare it to some of the rave parties that you read about in the newspapers. They had these feasts to their gods, and it wasn't only a lot of drinking that went on. That was an essential element of worshiping the god Bacchus. But another part of it was also that you were supposed to do whatever immoral thing you could possibly pursue. And the greatest form of adoration for the god is to do the most corrupt thing. Well, you can imagine the government tries to stamp that out. They tried to do whatever they could to limit this. Because at these feasts, when these festivals went on, then there was an incredible amount of of debauchery and immorality and of every other manner of sin, everything from murder to forgery to, to you name it. It was truly demonic. And this is the way that some of the people were worshiping their gods. We understand if, if this is the context, this is a big part of the reason why when the Jews looked at the Gentiles, then they saw them as sexual perverts. And they, they could not understand how these people could be included in the kingdom of God. Well, it's quite striking when God comes to his people here and he says, that's not who you are. He says, you're my holy people. You've been set apart to me. And since you're my holy people, the way that comes out is that there is not even to be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Well, what's, so bad about, what's so sad about sexual sin is that it obliterates God's intention for marriage, for sexuality. If you read through the scriptures, when you read through God's intention for sexuality, then it often is used with the language of unity. God gives sexuality as a special gift to husband and wife so that husband and wife may join together in a unique bond and that they may be bonded together in love for one another. 
You think, for example, the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Or chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. These comments are made in the context of sexual intimacy. That's also what Paul says in the last verses of 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you should never get together with a prostitute. Do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her? There's a unity that comes when you're together with another person. Then the Lord says, he says, it's not for you to do with other people. That's exclusively reserved for the marriage relationship. The consequences of, of adultery are very serious. Or talks about that. After his wife committed adultery, then Solomon says of the husband, Proverbs 6, verse 34, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Well, even if you're not married, brothers and sisters, there's often a lot of brokenness that comes through sexual sin. So much hiding. Sometimes lying about it. Sometimes there's you get caught in pornography. You want to stop, but you can't. And over time, you get dragged into a world of increasing perversion. Sometimes you sleep around with other people. King David, he, he talked about that, Psalm 51. He struggles with guilt. He pleads with God that God would not take his Holy Spirit away from him. Or in Psalm 32, he talks about how his bones wasted away and how his strength was sapped because of the heat of summer, his unconfessed sins. You know, for, for us, it's not an easy thing, brothers and sisters. In our culture, it may even be more difficult than back in Ephesus during this time. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught us, Matthew 5, that whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, if you think about that, you know, if you read the news, or if you go to the mall, or if you, you play one of these role-playing games on your computer, you know, how often isn't normal life laced with sexual innuendo and sexual immorality? There's so much soft porn around us. Everyone's got a phone. Everyone has access, ready access to pornography. Do you know the numbers? Studies say that a third of men and a quarter of women regularly use pornography. There's other studies that say half of men. We hope and pray that it's better in the church. But are there 100 people here this morning who regularly use pornography? Do you know where it leads? It's not just damage in relationship with others. At core, it's damage in your relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 6, God says that every other sin is outside of your body. But he says that he who sins sexually sins against your own body. And your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You offend the Spirit of God when you commit this sin. 
Paul spells it out in verses 5 and 6. He says, If you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. If there is sexual immorality in your life today, brothers and sisters, that you need to repent. You need to confess that to God. You must ask for his grace and forgiveness. You have to humble yourself before your father and plead with him that he set you free from your sin, that he forgive you for your guilt. If you don't, then you're going to hell. That's what he says. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So real life, what does it mean, brothers and sisters? It means that you must humble yourself before your Father. You have to open your heart and honestly confess to God what you've done and ask Him for His grace. If you're really humble, there's no more lying, there's no more secrets, that you're willing to be accountable to your office bearers, to your wife, your spouse, to others who are walking the journey together with you, maybe accountability software, you're willing to accept the consequence of your sin, you don't justify it, you don't excuse it. We know it's possible that you hear these things, brothers and sisters, and you think to yourself, there's nothing that I want more than to be set free from my sin. You know, I know I'm a sinner. I've asked God for forgiveness. And I pleaded with him again and again and again that he sets me free from this, and that he gives me relief. Well, nothing seems to change. Now you wonder to yourself, well, what, what's supposed to happen? What's next? You know, when you're in that place, and oftentimes it's one of the ways that God uses to humble you deeply, to make you realize the extent of your sin, that you are a sinner, and that you don't have the strength, you don't have the ability to change yourself, but that God needs to change you. The beautiful message of the scriptures is that this is what God does for his people. It's when you, when you stand with empty hands, and you, you literally can't do anything. You stand before God and you, you understand the, the extent of your depravity. And the Lord, he forgives his children. And those whom he forgives, he also renews with his Holy Spirit. Now, the whole point to the book of Ephesians is that Paul is teaching the Ephesians who they are in Christ. He says, by nature, you're sinners. But he says, that's not who you are today. God has forgiven your sins. He's made you alive in Christ. He's given you his Holy Spirit, and he's made you into this new person. And the Spirit of Christ is living in you. And when Christ lives in you, then you're not bound to commit the same old sins over and over. But God makes you into this new person who's able to put that away from you and to be able to begin to do what's good and right. Now, that's the, that's the promise. That's the blessing. That's the hope that we have. We read together in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. The Lord spells it out for us. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, brothers and sisters. You're justified. God cleared you of all your sins. You're sanctified. He makes you into a new person. And so sin doesn't have the final say in your life any longer. The Holy Spirit renews you. He gives you the free gift of an open relationship with your Father. Then we should also understand that this this gift of renewal doesn't only apply to sexual sin, but also applies to the rest of life as well. The rest of our passage, the Holy Spirit tells us there should not even be a hint of covetousness or of greed. Don't love money. Don't set your heart on it. Don't make a life of always trying to get more and more money. Don't spend all your time thinking about it. Luke 12, 15, there God tells us man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in our culture today, brothers and sisters, that's, that's the world we live in. That's the heartbeat of our society. Everyone in our society, they're in this place where they're pursuing the accumulation of things. It's a given that everyone wants to be rich. That's the lifestyle that everybody leads. Well, God says that's utterly incompatible with the life as his child. He says, if you pursue that lifestyle, if you make the accumulation of wealth a priority in your life, then he says, that's idolatry. You're not serving me, but you're serving other people, other things. And if you think adultery is, is a serious matter, then you need to read through the scriptures because adultery is not near as serious in the Lord's eyes when you, when you look at the sins and the reason the Lord sends his people into exile, and the reason the Lord comes against them in judgment, it's almost never that adultery is on the top of the list. What's on the top of the list is idolatry, is that you set your heart on someone or something else instead of the Lord, that your heart is captured by another. Well, let me ask you then, brothers and sisters, where is your heart at? How much of your energy and attention is focused on your work and on the accumulation of wealth? How much energy do you spend on your stock portfolio, on your super, on your investment properties, and your other investments? How much time do you give looking to other people's beautiful homes or their decorating or their special occasions on Pinterest or on Instagram? How much time do you spend looking at new boats or new cars on Marketplace? God tells us in Mark 4.19 that some people hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in 
and they choke the word, and it proves unfaithful, unfruitful. Quite literally, the word gets squished to the corners of people's lives, and in the end, their hearts are not fully devoted to the Lord their God. You know, if you're in the middle of pursuing all this materialism, then usually you can excuse it, you can justify it, makes perfect sense to you, this is the right thing to do at the time. But you know, real life, what happens later, when you're 75 years old, and when you witness your adult children spending their whole life pursuing material things, and their heart is cold toward God. Well, who are you going to blame then, brothers and sisters? You must repent. You must confess your sin to the Lord. If you need help with that, maybe the Lord will help you. He'll take it all away from you. He's rather good at that different times, different ways. It'll help you see how empty it is. But if you don't repent, then it will lead to spiritual death. It will lead to the judgment of God. God's wrath is going to come on you. In Revelation 18, God says he's going to make destitute all those who have followed the great prostitute and who have set their hearts on wealth. That's quite sobering, brothers and sisters. It's not the end. A couple more verses in our passage here. The next verse, the Lord says, Nor should there be filthiness, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Your Father says, Since you're my holy people, I don't want there to be any hint of obscenity among you. And one of the hallmarks of a Christian is that our speech is pure. When someone has a conversation with you, they should be able to tell in about the first three minutes that you're very different from the rest of the world. Because your conversation is going to be radically different from those who don't know God. That means no crude jokes. Literally, the word there, it refers to being witty, to turn a phrase. But it's actually referred to being witty in the context of lewdness. So what God's saying here is he's saying, no jokes with double meaning, with sexual connotations. Sexuality is sacred in his eyes. He says, don't joke about that, but you treat that with respect. Don't go along with the crass depravity of our culture. That doesn't fit in with your new identity in Christ. It's profoundly sad that the celebrities and the business leaders and the politicians of our world, they become more and more crass in their language. And so these days, it's not uncommon that they say things that are, that are unbecoming a person in office or a person with a public position. But when you, when you think of these things, these callings that our Father gives us, brothers and sisters, do you understand how God calls us to live a life that's radically different by the power of Christ? It's really very kind of the Lord that he gives us this passage. He's teaching us real life. Practically, how does your life change if Jesus Christ is your Savior? What does it look like if you're living the new life by the power of the Spirit of God? 
Well, in this regard, it's, it's really helpful for us to consider the life that our Lord Jesus Christ lived, that we get to see what it looks like. We get to understand how he will help us and what our lives will look like as we look to him in faith. When our Lord Jesus was on earth, that it was inconceivable that he would commit any such sin. He wasn't involved. He, he was, there was never a hint of any kind of sexual impropriety in his dealings with others. There was never any impurity or greed or obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking. Now, Christ knew that these things lead to death. That doesn't come from, from knowing God. That doesn't come from the Spirit of God. That's not who Christ was. That's not what Christ did. He lived a rich life. At core, he was rich towards God. He loved his father dearly, and he spent a great deal of time in prayer with his father. And his greatest joy was to give pleasure to his father. And he also lived in total dependence upon his father. And so instead of pursuing selfish or sinful desires, he lived for the will of God, to please his father and to honor his father in heaven. His life was not focused on himself, but on loving God and on loving his neighbor. And you know, if you're in that place where you love the Lord, where you love the people around you, you're not striving. You're not grabbing for things for yourself. But you're living in humble dependence upon the Lord. And when you do that, then you have the richest life ever. Then you have communion with God. Then you need something, and you ask your Father. And He loves you, and He gives it to you. And then you receive sexuality as a beautiful gift that you get to share in the context of, of a marriage relationship. And through God's blessing, that becomes a real joy for you and a blessing in your life. And the Lord gives you the money that you need. And He provides for your family. And He gives you the ability to live life in the way that it was intended to be lived. It's through the Spirit of God. It's when we, when we look to Jesus Christ in faith that His Spirit lives in us and that we live this new life. And it's, it's the beautiful life, brothers and sisters. It's the life with and for God. It's the life loving Him and loving the people around us. And as we do so, then we get to know Him in a new way. We get to rest under His blessings in rich ways. Amen.